You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 19th of July 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Well, Russia's actions had no impact at all on the outcome of the election. Let me be totally clear in saying that, and I've said this many times, I accept our intelligence community's conclusion that Russia's meddling in the 2016 election took place. Does he really, though? The cleanup operation following Donald Trump's Helsinki summit enters a fourth day. My guests Oscar Guardiola Rivera and James Boys will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the downhill slide of Ortega's Nicaragua, Israel's contentious new definition of itself, and why has Japan taken so long to hang up the no-smoking signs? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Oscar Guardiola Rivera, reader in law at Birkbeck University of London, and Dr. James D. Boys, US policy analyst and author of Clinton's War on Terror. Welcome both. We will start in the United States, where President Donald Trump's efforts to deal with the response to his Helsinki summit with his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin, continue to resemble a man attempting to put out a fire by spraying it with more fire. Though Trump has, if visibly reluctantly, more or less conceded that Russia might have meddled with the 2016 presidential election, he seems, as usual, much keener to blame those reporting it than those who did it. Putin, who is possibly just amusing himself at this point, has echoed Trump's view of events. Uh, James, first of all, to President <coughs> Trump himself, um, does he appear to be, just in terms of a, a PR thing, getting out from under this? It's hard to see how he's doing that, uh, quite frankly. This story keeps going on and on and on. Uh, the the news media in the US, to give them actual credit for this, are continuing to go after that. Um, we saw at a press conference yesterday with Sarah Huckabee Sanders deliberate attempts to get out of it by refusing to take follow-up questions, which I think for the first time ever, the reporters then basically handed the mic back and said, oh, no, 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 you go. Uh, there's a deliberate attempt here to sort of dig down into this story, I think, and get to a heart of what it is that's going on. What I think is fascinating is we're starting to see a discernible pattern, though, here to what Donald Trump does, which is time and again he's coming out with statements, falsehoods, um, ridiculous statements, which he is then forced to retreat into like some sort of bunker mentality where he's told by his advisors, his chief of staff, you've got to get out from under this and apologise for it, reverse that statement. He does so as we saw in the sound clip you played there, in a very sort of petulant fashion where he's clearly clearly reading from a script, reading it poorly, um, trying to basically end the story. And then in about a couple of days' time, he'll turn around, no doubt, and do what he's done in the past, which is to say, actually, you know what, I'm going back to my first position, which is to, which is to say that it was nothing to do with Russia whatsoever. And we saw that time and time again, uh, and, it, and it's uh, almost certain to happen in this instant again, I think. I mean, Oscar, is this... Well, and this, this is one of those incredibly annoying things I do where I introduce my own pet theory and invite one of the guests <laughs> to agree with it. You are wearily familiar with the setup by now. But is, is it possible, and I, I, I genuinely think this is the simplest explanation that fits the facts, that Trump genuinely does not understand what it is mm. that Russia 
is alleged to have done. Well, he understands very little, indeed, <laughs> of anything. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. We're not seeing here some sort of uh, uh, plot to uh, confound the audience. I think he's just genuinely confounded. Uh, and uh, he doesn't understand uh, the role that Russia is playing. He doesn't understand his role in that uh, uh, kind of conversation. And uh, as uh, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina uh, put it, uh, we're all left dumbfounded. I'm surprised that uh, Trump can uh, even remember what was his first position. I mean, if, if he is a Russian intelligence asset, he's the guy in that old joke about the spy whose job is so secret, even he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> uh, James, another evergreen question which has, has raised its head again uh, with increased urgency this week is the one about the apparent serenity uh, of, of the Republican establishment. I, I think there's still this vestigial hope that it's some, there's some sort of idea of country before party at large in there and that at some point there is going to come a day at which they do just all admit, OK, this is just getting ridiculous at this point, And yet we still don't appear to be there. We're certainly not there yet. Um, I do think that the only reason that Trump did come round and make that statement in the cabinet room uh, yesterday, though, was because of the criticism that he has received from members of the GOP, uh, publicly and privately, uh, from Speaker Ryan, from Mitch McConnell, uh, from his chief of staff, the pushback from, it must be said also, uh, correspondents on Fox News. Not universally, but certainly some of them have been very, very strong in their critique of, uh, of this performance. I think if it had just been coming from the usual suspects on the left or even in the centre, uh, Trump would have stood his ground. Uh, the fact that he was, I think, forced into this sort of slightly petulant um, you know, well, I've got to read this script just to say I'm doing this. Uh, it's purely because of uh, a degree of discomfort which is coming from the right. It's not enough. Uh, it's taken far too long to get here. Uh, but perhaps we are starting to see some glimmers uh, of, uh, of, uh, of something at least coming from the right, which is going to start some push pushback against Trump. Oscar, what have you made of the response of Russia to the last few days' worth of fiasco, not just to Russia's government, but Russia's media, which quite a lot of which now seems to be quite actively crowing about the idea that the President of the United States might be on the hook to the Kremlin? Well, in a sense, this... Uh, Which is, uh, but my point being, that's not terribly not terribly subtle tradecraft as it goes. Not at all. Uh, and uh, uh, it is very interesting. I mean, we have two sides to this, to this story which are beginning to develop, which are quite interesting. Uh, on the one hand, as uh, uh, was just pointed out, we see members of the GOP and the right-wing media in the US uh, beginning to uh, wake up to the fact that uh, this, this is just uh, too bad and it has, it has gone too far. Uh, and we're beginning to see something of the same sort in uh, in uh, in uh, the Russian media. Well, what is what you know this this uh, uh, dance in between these two leaders is uh, uh, just uh, uh, impossible to understand under any reasonable circumstances. Uh, James, just a final thought on this, and a, and a bit of a reality check, I guess. It, it, it's it's beyond any doubt, I think, beyond any serious doubt, that Russia did try to fiddle with the 2016 presidential election. And you can see why they would. It is it is all part of their, Russia's general agenda of just sowing discord and chaos uh, to, to undermine Western democracies. And, you know, fine, everybody needs a hobby. But uh, supposing the election had gone the way that everybody 
pretty much everybody anticipated, mm-hmm. including, I suspect, the Russians. And Hillary Clinton was now president, or indeed anybody who you might think of as a normal president. What would be the normal, reasonable, responsible reaction to what Russia had done, especially coupled with this 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 bizarre demand or suggestion from Russia we've seen in the last few days that they want a word with a former US ambassador? We could spend half an hour discussing much of what you just asked, to be very honest. But um, Trump simply cannot accept that there's been any sort of un- un- interference because that, in most people's minds, would undermine his own legitimacy. But had Hillary prevailed in that election uh, and there had still been these allegations of Russian interference um, in an attempt to uh, swing the vote in favour of, of Donald Trump, uh, I'm quite sure that... The very reasons that Russia uh, would have interfered, i.e. because they did not want Hillary to become president, would have basically been manifested uh, in a far greater series of sanctions against the Russian state, against the oligarchies involved, uh, and against uh, Putin and his overall uh, policies. I mean, there's, there is a reason that Russia was, was doing this. Um, it wasn't just to prevent Hillary Clinton from becoming president so she could enact those policies. It was to sow the chaos president at the heart of the White House which is what we've got. We spent many months on this sh- on this uh, channel talking about Putin and the blinder that he's been playing uh, across the last couple of years. And I think this is his ultimate ace card. Well, I'm sure the Russians cannot believe their luck. No, I agree. Uh, no, I, 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 I have thought for about the last two years that Vladimir Putin, despite appearing to have no sense of humour at all, must laugh himself to sleep every night. Uh, on that happy thought, we will move along. Uh, for persons of a certain age whose attention to Central American politics may have meandered over the decades, it's likely that the reappearance of the surname Ortega in the headlines would have prompted assumptions that the family business of running Nicaragua had been handed down a generation or two. But no, the forbidding figurehead grimly suppressing resistance to his rule is none other than Daniel Actual Ortega, who first became the country's leader as a 30-something revolutionary in 1979 and has been president in this stint since 2007. Um, Oscar, this is... It, it's its bad uh, by any measure. Uh, anti-government protests ongoing since April. At least 300 people dead. Four people killed earlier this week when Ortega's police stormed a rebel-held district of Masaya. Uh, Who is rebelling against him and why? Well, there are at least uh, uh, three clear uh, movements rebelling against uh, Ortega. On the one hand, uh, uh, the right-wing opposition, which is perhaps uh, unsurprising. Uh, Then uh, there are two other movements, uh, senior Catholics, uh, which is a bit more surprising because Ortega has compromised uh, in the past uh, many of the principles of the Sandinista revolution with uh, uh, the uh, sort of higher echelons of uh, uh, the Catholic Church, which in Nicaragua uh, is uh, quite conservative or at least uh, you know these uh, uh, high high levels uh, priests, and then uh, there is uh, the student movement. Uh, it is important to distinguish between these three movements because they don't have the same agenda. They do not respond to the same, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, you know, malign genius behind uh, uh, the screen. There isn't a malign genius here. Of course, the United States uh, uh, is intervening in the countries. So has always done. But in this case, it is also true that uh, Ortega, having compromised so much on the uh, uh, principles of the revolution, has left himself uh, 
open to precisely the kind of uh, opposition that is uh, uh, being, uh, you know, rightly uh, asking for uh, uh, his uh, uh, removal. It is uh, a very unfortunate uh, uh, turn of events for a revolution which uh, uh, started rightly against uh, uh, what uh, we, what, you know, most uh, uh, people uh, know as the last dictator of Nicaragua. But now we're seeing uh, the country spiraling uh, uh, out of control. Uh, and uh, those uh, those two forces, on the one hand, uh, Ortega trying to hold on to power by any means necessary, including uh, unforgivable means, and then uh, sectors of the opposition, some with uh, uh, less justifiable agendas, others with more justifiable agendas. Uh, that sort of uh, uh, brew is uh, uh, dealing the co- is dealing the country uh, a very very bad hand. Uh, James, for all Ortega's extraordinary uh, political and indeed actual longevity. Is it the case that he's one of those people, and it's quite a common dynamic, uh, they prove extremely efficient and inspiring and so forth at uh, at revolting, uh, if you will, but when they have to apply themselves to the often, as Oscar suggests, not merely compromising, but actually quite dull business of running a country, mm. they, they, they are found wanting. Yeah, I think so. It's uh, it's a, a classic uh, conundrum, isn't it? It's very easy to howl at the moon and to talk about what you do when you are in power. And uh, all too often, both in democracies and uh, in revolutionary states, uh, one sees the difficulties inherent in actually ruling. I was uh, smiling when you introduced the piece about those with long memories. Um, I can remember the 1980s. And uh, as soon as I saw this, I was reminded of the, uh, the Contra scandal, which, of course, uh, caused great ruptures to uh, Ronald Reagan's second term in office when coupled with the the Iran um, uh, hostage situation. So the idea that we've now got another um, right-of-center Republican administration uh, in Washington, D.C., we've got Daniel Ortega back in charge, uh, revolution uh, uh, going on in Nicaragua, it does feel like the 1980s are back again, quite frankly, with a vengeance. Uh, well, Oscar, on the subject of things that are back again, it, it has been and is going to continue to be, if the situation escalates, tempting for people to portray it as, uh, as, as Venezuela. Venezuela Redux, a, a similar kind of thing. I mean, obviously, in this case, the, the Hugo Chavez of the piece is still nominally in charge. Are they actually comparable circumstances? No, these are very, very different uh, countries, very different circumstances. Central America has very little uh, in common with uh, uh, but is in fact a sort of uh, emirate in the middle of uh, South America. Uh, having said that, what is common uh, uh, to these two countries is a long history of intervention, of foreign interventionism, coupled with a long history of attempts to rebel against it, which uh, uh, sometimes succeed and many times fail uh, uh, on their own uh, on their own uh, principles. Uh, James, there is reasonably well-sourced suggestion that Donald Trump has made inquiries of certain of his underlings about the prospect of military intervention mm-hmm. in Venezuela. He appears mercifully to have been talked out of that or perhaps just forgot about it, was distracted by a pigeon or something. But 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 what happens if Nicar- where Nicaragua is concerned? And as you said, there's a certain uh, race memory of it lurking, I suspect, in the Republican establishment. Uh, what happens if Trump sees something about this on Fox and Friends one morning and, and, and decides that he wants to get involved? Well, I was looking at this, um, and I think we should look very interestingly at the language which is already being used by the administration. We've seen Mike Pence, the vice president, 
say the repression must end and the will of the people must be heard. Interesting enough. Uh, the U.S. ambassador to the Organization of American States has referred to what's going on there as genocide. Now, both those statements are important. As soon as genocide gets utilized and big, accepted... That's a big, big bomb to drop. Absolutely. Now, don't forget, we talk a lot about, George, uh, about uh, Donald Trump and his rather fl- flagrant use of language, which he might not appreciate. But... An ambassador to the United, United Organization of American States will report directly into the State Department run by Mike Pompeo. That language surely must have been cleared. Utilizing that word, I remind everybody, was simply not used by the Clinton administration when it came to Rwanda. Because if they recognized, if they started calling it genocide, there were obligations to intervene. Could this... Could this perhaps be uh, one of the ways in which this is being cleared for potential American intervention by seemingly uh, introducing the genocide concept? But it's peculiar you you use the term uh, obligations to intervene. Of course, there is no such a thing in international law. I didn't use the word right to intervene, which, of course, is something which has come up under uh, United Nations. But this idea that if you refer to something as as a genocide, there is... um, uh, issues to do with uh, triggering uh, a response. Yeah, you're uh, paving the way towards that. Yes, but of course, that's precisely part of the problem. You know, Ortega can still defend his position, uh, which would otherwise be indefensible, precisely because of the meddling uh, in the United States, which is also true. Uh, so rather than, than being a solution that would also, uh, you know, throw fire into what is already, uh, uh, you know, a, a conflagration. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with James Boys and Oscar Huadiola Rivera. Coming up next, Israel enshrines its status as a Jewish state in law, but at whose expense? Summer is finally here, and so is Monocle's bumper July-August double issue. This is when we zero in on quality of life and cities, why we love them, what makes them actually work, and how they need to improve. As always, we reveal our ranking of the top 25 cities to live in worldwide. Find out if your city makes the cut. And for the first time, we present our manifesto for creating a more relaxed city. A guide to breathing in and lightening up. And a celebration of everything from taking your kit off to making a bit of a racket. In the affairs pages, we meet the urban heroes giving back to their hometowns. While in design, we take a closer look at greenery in the city and how to do it right. Elsewhere, we take a dip in Geneva's top swimming spot, we tuck into some northern Spanish grub, and we sit down for a mass with the locals in a few Bavarian beer gardens. Prost! That's all in the July-August issue of Monocle on newsstands everywhere now. Or head to monocle.com to become a subscriber. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Oscar Huadiola Rivera and James Boys. Now, the fact that Israel's most strident critics number among them significant quantities of Earth's worst and most tedious people does not, of course, mean that Israel never does anything which might reasonably prompt a critical response. Israel's Knesset has passed what looks very much like one such measure, something called the Basic Law, which will strengthen Israel's identity as a Jewish state, but apparently at the expense of Israel's minority of Arab citizens. Among the provisions of the new law are what seems a fairly pointless and petulant downgrading of Arabic from its status as an official language. Um, Oscar, first of all, it, 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 the, the 
The supporters of this law um, do kind of claim it, uh, that it is merely cleaning up a, a minor administrative anomaly, as they see it, which is that uh, Israel's status as a Jewish state has not been enshrined in law before, which I actually confess kind of surprised me. Um, that being said, is, is that actually a necessary thing for Israel to do? Of course it is unnecessary, and it is also uh, highly calculated and very dangerous. Uh, this is a law which is un- both unjust and it goes against the very foundation of the state of Israel in the post-war context as an attempt to get at a more integral humanity because it goes in the exact opposite direction. It reduces the demos, the people of the state of Israel, to an ethnos, to a sector of the population which is identified and identifies itself uh, uh, in, uh, you know, according to both religious and, and uh, uh perhaps ethnic or racialist criteria. That is uh, very problematic and it should be strongly criticised. I mean, James, I, I don't think it's possible for anybody who's spent any amount of time there to, to doubt the obviously Jewish character of the Israeli state. Um, why do the people who think this law is necessary therefore think it's necessary? Well, I think if you, if you try and put yourself in the mindset of those who are trying to pre- present this and pass this, I wonder whether it's because all the talk of the two-state solution and the peace process leading towards that seems to have gone very, very, very quiet of late. Um, The one thing I wonder is whether there is a growing fear that the two-state solution is not going to progress and that the alternate, therefore, is a one-state solution. And that the one-state solution, uh, in the mindset of those who are responsible for passing this, um, will inevitably lead to um, what they see as the end of the Jewish majority population, simply on the grounds of uh, returning um, Arabs into the area, uh, population growth, etc., etc. So that this is a preemptive strike uh, to make sure that under uh, Israel, be that a two-state or one-state solution in the future, uh, the the Jewish population has uh, a, 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 a seniority, effectively, which permanently establishes Arabs as a, um, as a subsect, effectively. Uh, it's had impacts upon the use of the Arab language, upon Arab people. Um, it should also be noted, of course, that this actual legislation was actually watered down. So uh, whatever, so one thinks about it, it was, a, it was a hell of a lot worse. Yeah. Well, I mean, which, which does prompt the next question, Oscar, and it, it, it is one of basic political manoeuvring. There were some much more obviously discriminatory sections. Um, were they basically put in there as something to be dropped? Uh, so the people propagating the bill could say, see, we're being reasonable. It's, 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 such tactics are not unheard of. Uh, they're not unheard <laughs> of, but the result is equally unreasonable. Uh, I mean, we just, uh, you just put it correctly. It turns the other people into a subset, and that is hugely problematic because it would become very, very difficult to distinguish between uh, the kinds of uh, uh, opinions which are uh, trying to justify this unjust law uh, and those which in, uh, let's say, uh, parts of the United States also attempt to preempt uh, the coming end of a white uh, majority in, by 2040 mm-hmm. by precisely claiming that uh, the majority of the country should express the, the views of, uh, say, white Christians. Uh, when you put those two together and you make that comparison, it becomes very, very difficult to defend uh, the legitimacy and justness of this law.
James, it's one of those laws which, for me, and I, I always think it's a good test to apply to any new law by any government or indeed any other uh, body in authority, which is the question, would it matter or really make any difference to anything or make life significantly worse if we didn't do this? Uh, so I guess in this specific instance, would Israel have lost anything by not passing this law at all? Yeah, I think it's a fair point. Um, as I say, I don't think this is um, from the minds of the policymakers who are implementing this, a policy for today. Uh, it seems very much more like it's um, an, uh, an insurance policy against potential developments down down the line, effectively. I mean, just from a simple majority point of view, Arab uh, Arabs within the state of Israel uh, constitute about 20% of the population. So Thereabouts. in terms of the overall majority, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's you know, you're, you're playing almost to the to the, the, to the choir. But there were uh, massive protests among certain individuals within the Knesset against this. So there is certainly um, uh, opposition within Israel against this move, but not sufficient to obviously prevent it from, from getting through. But again, I reiterate, I think this is very much, it's not about Israel today, I think, from the perspective of those policymakers. I think it's very much about trying to uh, insulate against potential developments down the line if and when the two-state solution collapses uh, and pressure mounts for a one-state solution. Uh, I think it's a way, therefore, of trying to basically protect the rights of, of the Jewish people within the state of Israel. Um, and again, that is not my viewpoint. I'm just You asked me very much about trying to mm. understand where the mindset of this might possibly be coming from. Oscar, just a final thought on this. C can you pass laws that will hedge against demography? Pre precisely, precisely. I mean, that's the stupidity of this, uh, this laws. I mean, I've called it unjust. I've called it uh, illegitimate. Now let's call it stupid because uh, <laughs> uh, really, I mean, this idea that you can... Uh, you can can uh, somehow stop time, stop reality, stop, stop demographics, stop people from doing what people always do, which is move, reproduce, leave. So the idea that laws could go against life and freeze time is just uh, nonsense. Okay, well, finally tonight, uh, the phenomenon of widespread smoking in public places, bars, cinemas, restaurants, and so forth, is one of those things which has gone swiftly and mercifully from being commonplace to seeming so weird that it seems strange that it was ever permitted. Except in Japan, which had become regarded, by the standards of the developed world at least, as something of a haven for smokers. Until now, Japan's parliament, seeking to tidy the country's image in advance of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, has passed a law banning smoking in some public places, more at least than smoking is presently banned. Um, I declare an interest here in that I think the, the widespread abolition of smoking from the public sphere in recent years has been one of the best things that has ever happened, uh, because I am uh, old enough to remember going home from gigs and so forth absolutely reeking, um, and I don't smoke, and Lord knows what it was I was inhaling. Um, at this point, 2018, James, when no sane person believes that smoking is anything other than an utter pestilence, why would you not pass these laws? It's a fair point, and I'm sure I just reiterate that everything you were inhaling was perfectly legal. Um, I think that when my, you my point being, I had no, <laughs> I had, no idea. <laughs> I had no idea and no say in the matter. Of being course, my point, of um, I think that uh, there's no doubt about it that finally Japan is catching up. I would totally agree with you uh, that the uh, uh, the abolition of smoking um, in the United Kingdom has been a massive um, uh, advantage. I, I wonder, quite frankly, if it is only the, uh, the the taxation that's coming in and the potential uh, money. That 
that's been spent by lobbyists, which hasn't led it to being completely outlawed at this point. Um, it would be wonderful to think that uh, those two could be overcome, but I do think that the ultimate uh, tobacco lobby and the money that comes in from taxation will ensure that uh, uh, tobacco goods are still going to be available uh, to uh, to pollute the minds and the bodies of uh, a new generation coming forward, quite frankly. But uh, I, I agree wholeheartedly with you upon this. I mean, the the, the aspect of this Japanese uh, law, which, which kind of boggles my mind, is that it has been watered down somewhat. Exemptions have been found, they estimate, for 55% of restaurants. This is, this is unconscionable. I mean, why, why would people... I mean, the thing is, I, I mean, I think it's unconscionable in two levels. One is why any restaurant would permit smoking on its premises anyway. The other is, even if you do smoke, have you no manners whatsoever? Well, <laughs> you're absolutely on the money. If you smoke, particularly if you smoke in a place like a restaurant, you have no manners whatsoever and you don't care about anybody else. But of course, this particular uh, uh, measure and the way it was watered down has uh, its reasons, uh, uh, perhaps uh, in the fact that, uh, say, corporate giant Japan Tobacco Incorporated is partially owned by the Japanese uh, 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 finance ministry. So uh, there are very, very powerful interest <laughs> uh, here at play. Uh, and that, uh, you know, there is a balance, this, this sort of very funny balance in between that and the fact that by 2020, they have to appear to the world to be healthy because after all, they're going to host the Olympics. Um, we, we have about a minute left. We did an item a couple of weeks ago, I think, about something else being banned, at the end of which I did invite the guests to pick anything that they, given the power to do so, would like to expunge from the public sphere. Uh, I, I won't on this occasion insert my own choice because then I'm just going to spend the 45 seconds we now have left talking about umbrellas and about how anybody who uses them on a city street is some sort of deviant sociopathic weirdo. But my point, again, once made, and it's true, um, I, I, will, I will throw open the floor. J James, what, what would you like to abolish? Simon Cowell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that, that's a human being rather than a thing, but I, 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 don't, th I don't think any right-thinking listener is going to disagree with that, Oscar. Uh, my heavy metal uh, friends are going to kill me. Jagermeister. I despise you, you, you would ban Jägermeister? Yes, yes. Is, is that for the drink itself or the effect yes. it has on those who <laughs> consume it? Well, both. But probably the latter, but it tastes awful. Um, Let's be frank. It, the, the thing is, I, I think Jägermeister is one of those things that it, it kind of only tastes good if you've already had two or three Jägermeisters. <laughs> so you, you, you need to kind of work your way up to it. Uh, and really, I'm, I'm only on my third of the show at this point. But uh, at that stage, at that point, at that juncture was the word I wanted the first time. Uh, we have reached the end of today's show. Uh, thank you very much, Oscar Guardiola and Oscar Guardiola Rivera and James Boys. Uh, the show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Paula Schultz. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's The Urbanist. More on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.